Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you will get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today and become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at podgo.co. And be sure to add Casting Through Ancient Greece in How Did You Hear About the Podgo section of the application. Casting Through Ancient Greece is now on Patreon. If you would like to support the series over on Patreon, you can head to patreon.com forward slash casting through ancient Greece, where you can gain access to bonus episodes plus many more extras. That's patreon.com forward slash casting through ancient Greece, or you can click on the link on the Casting Through Ancient Greece website. In the event of your bringing this war to a successful conclusion, you must remember me, and do something for my freedom. For the sake of Greece, I have taken a great risk in my desire to acquaint you with what Mardonius intends, and thus to save you from a surprise attack. I am Alexander of Macedon, taken from Herodotus' histories. Hello, I'm Mark Selleck, and welcome back to Casting Through Ancient Greece, Episode 28, The First Clash. The collection of Greek city-states that had come together to defend Greece from Xerxes' invasion were now assembling together in the largest combined force yet known. The road to this point from the formation of the Hellenic League at Corinth some two years earlier was a rough one. The unity within the League threatened to collapse on a number of occasions, due to the competing interests these fiercely independent city-states had. The coalition began in the right spirit, with the members taking oaths of loyalty to one another and agreeing to lay past quarrels aside. Once the Persian campaign was underway though, the threats they faced would put tremendous pressure on the loyalty they had sworn to one another. The Persian outflanking force at Thermopylae proved to break the nerve of a number of Greeks, and saw them abandon the pass, while others would stay and fight until the end. At Artemisium, tensions would see a number of contingents wanting to abandon their position before a consensus was arrived at. The Greeks would withdraw together in order before any mutiny could eventuate. Salamis would see the League's cooperation tested even further, with the Athenians having to threaten the rest of the alliance to their fate if they would sail their fleet away to establish a new city in Italy. Even this saw the League holding together on shaky ground. Themistocles would force the Greeks to unite in an act in any other situation would have been seen as treason. Though, after Salamis, the unity of the Hellenic League looked to almost disappear altogether. Xerxes had left Greece, and the force left behind fell back into Thessaly. The Peloponnesians feeling much more secure now, they reverted back to focusing on their initial defence plan, a wall across the Isthmus of Corinth. This would still leave Athens and the other city-states north of Corinth vulnerable to the Persians, that remained under Mardonius. Eventually, threats on behalf of Athens falling in with the Persians, or compromise on the committed forces, saw the Hellenic League once again unite, in August of 479 BC. Contingents from Sparta, Arcadia, Corinth, Plataea and Athens, plus many more, now began to march north along the roads, with the heaviest traffic coming out of the Peloponnese. The largest body being that headed by Pausanias and his Spartans, which would continue to grow as smaller contingents fell in as the march north continued. 
Mardonius mobilised his forces and prepared to leave Athens to friendlier territories. Thebes would be one of the largest Greek city-states to have fallen in with the Persians, and the territory near their polis was ground where Persian cavalry could operate more effectively. A Persian camp was established between Thebes and the Esopus River. The Athenian contingent had come across from Salamis and now linked up with the main force, which now made its way to the Scytheron Mountains. As well as the main Greek force marching, many smaller groups were on the roads, heading from various villages, along with supply columns carrying the supplies essential to keeping the largest Greek force yet seen in the field. As the main body with the Spartans and the Athenians arrived in the passes of the Scytheron Mountains, they would see before them a vast plain below, with some features that would provide defensive positions, but smoothed out as it approached the Esopus River. They would have seen the extensive camp of the Persians across the river and their large palisade they centred on. To most, it would seem clear that this would be where they would be engaging the Persian forces, and for many, this would be their first time in a land battle with the invaders. But what would develop initially was very similar to what the Athenians had encountered 11 years earlier at the Bay of Marathon. A standoff would develop for over 10 days, with neither side wanting to take the offensive. In this episode, we will deal with the events surrounding this extended prelude to the battle, looking at what was taking place and perhaps why. What has come down in history, mainly through Herodotus, Plutarch and Diodorus, can be confusing in the timeline. We have to remember that even our earliest source, Herodotus was gathering his information a generation or two after the battle took place. The events being recounted to him from various veterans could have easily been mistakenly recalled out of place or even contradictory for this extended period before the battle proper was joined. So let's try and understand what was happening in the lead up to this battle now that both sides were facing one another. The Hellenic League camped in the foothills continued to be reinforced by other Greek columns arriving in the Scytheron Mountains. This terrain was completely unfavourable for a Persian attack, which Mardonius was well aware of. He needed to get the Greeks out into the open terrain where his cavalry could reign supreme. It had become clear that the Greeks had no intentions of leaving the foothills around Erythrea, so he now devised a plan to attempt to entice the Greeks forward. Masistius, a distinguished cavalry commander, was summoned by Mardonius to take the Persian cavalry and attack the Greeks in force in an attempt to draw them forward. It has been suggested by the historian Peter Green that Mardonius may have been testing the effectiveness of his cavalry in the terrain before sending them against the hoplite phalanx. Also, since it would have been assumed that Mardonius would have known the terrain the Greeks occupied was not well suited to cavalry attack, did he have an ulterior motive for ordering the charge? Was he looking at sacrificing some of his cavalry in the hopes this would boost the Greeks' confidence, bringing them further out into the plains, where other cavalry would be in their element? This second part seems like a bit of a gamble since the cavalry were his best arm. I'm more inclined to think that he was looking to cause a crisis in the Greek ranks, forcing the rest of the Greeks to respond and drawing them out of their defensive positions, creating an opportunity to allow the Persian army to attack in force. Assistius, now in command of his cavalry force, moved out towards the Greek lines. It is unclear the size of the force he commanded, though it must have been fairly large, as we know it was made up of a number of squadrons, and initially Mardonius was looking at attacking the Greek line in force. Mardonius may have had the intention of the cavalry attack going in and charging en masse, but it appears that the commander, Masistius, altered the attack. On the advance of the Greek lines, it may have become apparent to him that the terrain in the front of the Greek position would break up the mass of cavalry before engaging the Greek lines. Also, it appears the Greeks were ready for them, and their bronze wall of shields, with their spears arrayed out in front, 
wasn't an attractive target to clash his cavalry upon. Masistius arranged his command to attack in squadrons, charging up, testing the resolve of the defenders, and releasing arrows or javelins before then peeling off, avoiding making contact with the Greek wall. Each squadron would have repeated this action, hopefully wearing down the Greek nerves. We hear from Herodotus, Diodorus, and Plutarch that the Persian cavalry had focused on the position Megara was holding. Apparently their location was seen as the weakest point and most effective for operations of cavalry. Perhaps the terrain leading up to them was well suited to hit-and-run tactics. With Plutarch writing that they were camped in the plains so a prime target for cavalry. The cavalry action of the Persians was beginning to have its desired effect, with the Megarians becoming hard-pressed. A message was able to be dispatched back to Pausanias, who appears to have established a headquarters where the other contingent commanders were present. Herodotus reveals the contents of the message in his histories. Fellow soldiers, without assistance we are unable to hold the Persian cavalry or to maintain our original position. Up to the present, in spite of severe losses, we have continued to resist with firmness and courage. But now, unless you send troops to relieve us, we warn you that we shall have to quit our post. Pausanias recognising that his Spartan force would be too slow and unwieldy to provide any real assistance in the face of the Persian cavalry, is then supposed to have called for volunteers from the commanders under him. We are told that all were unwilling to risk their forces, except for Aristides, who committed a detachment of 300 Athenian hoplites, accompanied by the archers Athens had sent along with the army. There may be a little bit of Athenian propaganda at play in the accounts, showing that they were willing to save the line, while Megara were threatening the Greeks' position by withdrawing. There was no love lost between Megara and Athens, who had strained relations before the Persian invasion, and would continue to afterwards. In Herodotus' account, only the Athenians are ever referred to as being equipped with a contingent of archers. Surely if this were the case, Pausanias would have recognised their effectiveness against harassing cavalry, if they were protected by a formation of hoplites. The Athenian task force now set out and joined the contingent from Megara in their position. It seems they withdrew once the Athenians arrived, as later on Herodotus talks of the Athenians facing the Persian cavalry alone. Once the Athenians were in position, the squadrons of the Persian cavalry force would have received a nasty surprise. Previously, they would have been fairly unhindered as they rode up, harassing the position with their missiles. Now, though, they discovered that the reinforced position fired back with the archers, well protected by the hoplites. This wouldn't deter the Persians yet, though. The squadron continued to attack. It would take more to affect their morale. On one of these successive attacks, the Athenian archers noticed at the head of the cavalry a striking figure dressed in gold armour riding a magnificent horse. This was the Persian cavalry commander, Masistius, who would make an excellent target. Masistius may not have learnt yet of the Athenian archers now present at the position, as he rode off leading the next squadron attack. As the squadron harassed the Athenians and turned to ride off, the archers aimed at Masistius's horse, seeing that he was well protected himself. His horse then reared up and flung the commander to the ground. He had been left isolated and was vulnerable, as the rest of his cavalry had not noticed his fall, and he was now weighed down by his splendid armour. Once down, the Athenians raced forward to capture his horse and attempt to kill the fallen commander. Both Herodotus and Plutarch tell us this was a difficult task because of all the armour, but in the end, he was run through the eye, one of the few places he was unprotected. Once the Persian cavalry had reformed, it was discovered that their commander was not with them, and they could probably see the Athenians recovering his body and horse. The cavalry now, instead of attacking in squadrons, charged en masse in an attempt to recover their commander's body. 
The Athenians, seeing what was about to transpire, sent an urgent appeal for reinforcements. Initially, the Athenians had to contend with the Persian attack alone, and conceded some ground. In the process, giving up control of Masistius's body. Though before they could be completely overwhelmed, the reinforcements they had requested began to arrive in full force. The tide of the struggle now started to turn to where the Persians were unable to hold their commander's body, and suffered great losses themselves, where they were now forced to retire. Not willing to continue the fight, they decided to withdraw back to the main Persian line and report to Mardonius on their commander's death. This action would provide a much-needed boost to the Greeks' morale, and Herodotus gives us an account of how the commanders made sure the whole army benefited. The Greeks, having both held and repulsed the cavalry charge, were much encouraged. Masistius's body on a cart and paraded along the lines. It was certainly worth looking at, for Masistius was a tall and splendid handsome man. This is why they did it, and the men broke their ranks to get a sight of Masistius. This opening action before the Battle of Plataea would instill a confidence into the army to where they sought to advance from their protected positions in the mountains. Pausanias was not looking at going on the offensive, as the omens revealed had stressed victory lay in defence. Though if the Greek line moved forward and set themselves on Plataea instead of Erythea, they would have better access to drinking water. Although the army was well supplied, bringing along their own wagon train, they would still need access to fresh water and a good supply of it to sustain the largest Greek army yet assembled. Seeing the Persian mass cavalry charge defeated would have encouraged this move, with the knowledge that a mixed hoplite and light infantry force was effective against the cavalry. It appears that on their arrival in the high ground of the Scytheron foothills, an official order of battle had not been put into effect, with Herodotus saying, The best thing, therefore, seemed to be to shift the camp and take up a new position, in their proper detachments, near the spring called Gagafia, in Plataean territory. There are hints of disputes breaking out on which contingents should take up which position. Plutarch writes, The Tegians, contesting the post of honour with the Athenians, demanded that according to custom, the Lacedaemonians being ranged on the right wing of the battle, they might have the left, alleging several matters in commendation of their ancestors. We also see Herodotus reporting disagreements between Athens and Tegia over the deployment of the left wing, once it had been decided to advance towards Plataea. But it is possible that this was an ongoing dispute since both contingents' arrivals in the mountains. The issue would finally be put to rest with Pausanias giving the left wing to the Athenians. If you can remember, the right wing of a hoplite line was considered the position of honour. With the Spartans in command, they would be taking up this post. The next position of honour was the left wing. Although there was still a trickle of Greeks arriving in the Scytheron Mountains, we now get an idea from Herodotus of the positions of the various contingents and the numbers in the Hellenic army. They set up their defensive lines some six to seven kilometres along the foothills. The Spartans, other Lacedaemonians, Tegeans and Thespians made up the Greek right flank. Their numbers came to around 30,000, including light troops. Next to their position at the village of Hesiae came the Corinthians, Potidaeans, Arcadians and Ciconians made up of 15,000 troops. On their left was another force of 15,000, seeing the smaller contingents from the Peloponnese, the islands and other regions making up this formation. Next to them on the left flank were 30,000 troops coming from Megara, Plataea and Athens. All up, most ancient sources placed the Hellenic army's strength at just over 100,000, while modern estimates put this number somewhere around 80,000. With the Greeks taking up their new positions, Mardonius now responded with deploying his troops in a line of battle, 
Once again, we get a picture of the various units in the Persian force and what part of the Greek line they opposed, though it is difficult to get an idea of the numbers of the units involved. Facing the Spartans and other Peloponnesians were what were considered the cream of the infantry, the Persian troops. Continuing along the line were the Medes, Bactrians, Indians and Sakae. Then on the far end facing the Athenians were the troops of the Medizing Greek city-states. Persian cavalry was then placed on both flanks and in the rear of the Persian line. Herodotus placed the Persian army at around 350,000 strong. Most modern estimates place the Persians around the 100,000 mark, give or take 20,000. This finally seeing the disparity between the forces brought much closer together for the first time. Although both sides had now set their forces in motion in view of one another, neither had gone on the offensive. Both Pausanias and Mardonius were committed to taking advantage of their strengths. The Greeks occupied positions more suited to infantry combat with a strong defensive terrain behind them, while the Persians were in flat terrain ideal for cavalry, with a strong camp position to support them. If either advanced, they risked giving away their advantages and playing into their enemies. Pausanias had his official diviner once again make sacrifices now that they had occupied a new position. Once again, the omens came back favourable if the Greeks would fight a defensive action and not advance across the Esopus River, which separated the two armies. Perhaps Tissimenus's reading of the omen was a handy excuse to justify to his commanders and troops why they remained inactive for so long. Pausanias would also be wanting to stall any action for the time being, as there were still contingents of Greek forces arriving through the mountains, swelling the Greek ranks as each day passed. Mardonius was also wanting to remain on the defensive. Apparently sacrifices in the Greek tradition had also taken place in his camp, which also promised victory on a defensive action. He would be well aware he was commanding an army only a fraction of what Xerxes had originally brought into Greece. The reports coming back to him of Greeks continually arriving through the passes in the Scythron Mountains would have caused some anxiety, since for the first time in the war, the Persians didn't hold much of an advantage in numbers. With the stalemate in effect, for a number of days now, Mardonius was looking for another way to force some sort of outcome. Finally, another cavalry action was planned. According to Herodotus, this was as per a suggestion from the Thebans. Now that the Greek army had come forward from their positions in the foothills, the Persian cavalry would be able to manoeuvre behind the main line and attack and threaten the Greek lines of supply through the pass in the mountains. Surely this would have to provoke some sort of reaction from Pausanias. Once the Persian cavalry reached the pass in the Scythron Mountains, a baggage train made up of hundreds of mules happened to be making its way to the army with supplies from the Peloponnese. The Persian cavalry, now not having to contend with the sharp spears of the Greek hoplites, fell upon the defenceless men and animals. A great slaughter took place before then rounding up the captured booty and survivors and escorting them back to Persian lines. With the success of the cavalry raid, Mardonius now sought to arrange another since no meaningful movement on the part of the Greeks took place. Over the past days, the Persians had been harassing the Greek lines, attempting to entice them into action and across the Esopus. The Persian archers had become enough of a threat to the Greeks who were collecting fresh water from the river that separated them, that now the entire Greek line was using the Gagathia spring in the rear as the main source of fresh water. The spring would be the target of Mydonius's next cavalry raid. Once again, the cavalry was able to operate between the Greek lines and the Scytheron foothills. With their manoeuvrability, they succeeded in fouling the spring and the main source of fresh water the Greeks were relying on. 
With the relative ease that the Persian cavalry seems to be operating behind the Greeks, it appears they had been continuing operations against the Greek supply lines. Herodotus says, The servants who had been sent to bring back the supplies from the Peloponnese had been stopped by parties of Persian cavalry and failed to rejoin. During the night, a rider from the Persian side of the Esopus made his way towards the Greek line where the Athenians were stationed. The rider was Alexander of Macedon, who had come with news helpful to the Greeks. As we have seen throughout the last few episodes, Alexander either seems to have been playing both sides of the fence, or was intent on eventually freeing his lands of the hold Xerxes now had over it. Herodotus has his visit taking place before the raid on the spring, but I can't help wonder if this took place the night after the raid, helping lead to subsequent decisions by Pausanias we will soon get to. Alexander had requested an audience with Aristides, where he then proceeded to inform him of Mardonius' situation and intentions. He had revealed that the Persians were now struggling to keep their army in the field supplied. This was now forcing him to ignore the unfavourable omens he was receiving, and he now planned to attack. The information Aristides gathered, the situation regarding the army supplies, and their access to the drinking water was now causing concern amongst the various commanders along the Greek line. All of the commanders now gathered, and a council was held at Pausanias' position on the right wing. Supposedly the information from Alexander that Aristides brought before Pausanias was for his ears only, so as not to jeopardise himself and his kingdom while answerable to Persia. So whether if Alexander's visit took place when Herodotus says it did, or not, it still would have been in Pausanias' mind when in council with the commanders. During the preceding days of stalemate, Pausanias had made redeployments of his line in an attempt to gain an advantage and break the stalemate. Though I find it a little hard to believe the reason for the redeployment given by Herodotus, and the version found in Plutarch's lives. He has the Spartans recognising the Athenians' ability over their own, where it came to having to fight the Persians and swap positions with them. As we have seen, the Spartans were seen as the preeminent land force amongst the Greeks, and many another Poly's superiority over their own just doesn't seem likely, especially with so many of the Peloponnesian allies present. Some modern historians have proposed that Pausanias, wanting to start the battle and gain some sort of tactical advantage, attempted to draw the Persians into attacking them on unfavourable ground. So maybe these movements were testing how the Persians would respond to Greek movements. These redeployments only saw the opposing lines matching to counter the other's movements, with no change in the situation occurring. It's unclear how many of these redeployments took place, but ultimately, all of the contingents would end up back in their original position once the council was held. With Pausanias being unsuccessful in breaking the stalemate, facing the issues of supply and the knowledge of an intimate Persian attack, he finally ordered that the Greek line would fall back to higher ground and to where they could protect their lines of supply and gain a secure source of water. Though doing this would take some time to arrange with such a large army to make an orderly withdrawal, Another factor was that the Persian cavalry was roaming fairly free behind the Greek lines, so falling back during the day would leave them vulnerable to an organised cavalry attack. It was now decided that the withdrawal would take place of the entire line during the next night. Preparations would need to be taken to blunt in any Persian attacks, and if a general engagement didn't develop, they would fall back as planned. A plan had been made and all of the commanders would return to their contingents to fulfil their part. The general idea was to fall back to Plataea, with all the contingents converging on the feature known as the island, just before and east of the town of Plataea. This would see the spurs and foothills once again providing protection against cavalry attacks. From this point, 
the Greeks could then deploy their new line centred on the island. Mardonius may well have arranged for a general attack, but upon seeing the Greek line prepared more so than the previous days for battle, a series of probes seemed to have ensured. The harassing attacks continued with more vigour than before, the centre of the Greek line being the main focus of these attacks, which would have an impact on their movements once the withdrawal began. As night came on, the Persian attacks began to subside, with the cavalry returning back across the Esopus to camp. Now the Greek commanders readied their contingents to fall back, as was arranged for the previous night. From here, the agreed plan went astray, reinforcing the notion that no plan survives contact with the enemy, which many military commanders throughout history would learn. The Greek contingents who made up the centre had a tough day in the face of the prepared Persian attacks. Instead of withdrawing to the island, they now proceeded to make their way back, until reaching the outskirts of Plataea. Here they would have found a much more defensible position. Two lines of thought can be drawn upon here. As Herodotus suggests, their retreat to Plataea was due to the fact that they were attempting to put as much distance between themselves and the Persians, after having suffered so much from them during the day. Though, another possibility could have been the fact that they were conducting manoeuvres at night with some 15,000 troops. Conducting night operations with large bodies of troops has been notoriously difficult all throughout history. The landmark of the island may not have been as obvious during the night, while Plataea stood out during the centre towards it. Pisani is now aware that the centre of the line was in motion, assuming them to be falling back to the agreed rally point, began making arrangements with his subordinate commanders to pull back. It appears that most of the commanders that served under him had not been present at the council the night before, or had even been told of the plan that resulted from the meeting. The plans he had made were now going to be disrupted on his wing also. One of his subordinates, Amophritus, now stepped forward and voiced his opposition to the order to move. He argued to fall back in the face of the enemy was a great dishonour for a Spartan. So he and his command would not obey. Pausanias now delayed the movement of the rest of the wing while attempting to convince Mophritus of his error in judgment. The exchanges between the two had become quite heated whereupon a rider that had been sent from the Athenian position arrived. Things even over on the left wing were not going as planned. The Athenians are supposed to have halted in their position, thinking the Spartans had changed the plan. They probably were aware that the right wing had not yet moved, so had a herald sent off to find out what was happening. So at this stage, the Greek line developed a gaping hole in the centre as those contingents fell back, though they would withdraw much further back than what had been originally planned. Meanwhile, both the right and left wings were remaining in place, the left wing delaying their movement due to seeing no action on the right taking place. The Spartan right delayed as arguments amongst the commanders had broken out. If the situation in the line remained this way once dawn approached, the Greek line would be in a very vulnerable position. Pausanias needed to get things sorted and the army on the move. We must also point out here that this episode with Amophritus is debated. It has been pointed out that what the Athenian herald had come across was a debate on who would take the honour of acting as a rear guard for the Spartan withdrawal. So the argument perhaps was not a rejection of the order to retreat, but which commander and their contingent would remain to cover the retreat. Mophritus may have been at the time putting up his case forward to obtain honour for himself and his command as the Athenians rode into the Spartan position. What gives some weight to this theory is later on after the battle, Herodotus describes Amophritus as being one of the Spartans who most distinguishes himself during the battle. If this was the same Amophritus, then it would seem unlikely that he would be committing an act of mutiny during the battle. 
The argument or debate, however we like to view this episode, continued in the Spartan position to where the Athenian herald was brought up to Pausanias. He inquired what action the Athenians should take, as it seemed what had been arranged was unfolding contrary to what had been decided. Pausanias had now come to a decision on matters on his own wing. Whether that was to leave the disgruntled Demophritus to his fate, hoping he would fall back after coming to his senses, seeing the predicament of his own situation, or perhaps he had finally selected Demophritus and his unit to take up the highly dangerous but honourable task of covering the withdrawal of the main line. But if he didn't get on the move now, the entire Greek line would be at great risk once the sun rose. With matters now sorted in Pisanius' camp, he then instructed the rider to tell the Athenians to follow the lead of the right wing and meet at the arranged position. Both armies had now been in the field facing one another for some ten days, without a general battle developing. As we have seen, measures had been taken to try and entice each other onto the offensive. The Persians had been using their cavalry in harassing manoeuvres to attempt to draw the Greeks out of their defensive positions. They would achieve this, but not intending to pay the price they did, losing a charismatic cavalry commander, and the cavalry suffering heavy casualties. The Greeks had deployed further forward with their confidence up after the victory over the cavalry force. Still, attacking their positions would still prove a difficult task, as the Greek line was still united. The Greeks would also attempt to force action by redeploying contingents all along the front lines, though the Persians would respond by making their own deployments to match them. The Greeks having come forward opened up another opportunity for the Persians to force them to respond. The rear areas were now much more vulnerable to cavalry operations, as they would be able to manoeuvre with greater ease. This would see Mardonius focus on the Greeks' ability to keep their forces supplied. The supply lines going through the Scytheron Mountains was disrupted by these cavalry operations, as well as a supply of water, with the cavalry being able to foul the only feasible fresh water source this far forward. Though the Persians were facing their own supply issues as well, the situation now seeing both sides become more desperate. The biggest issue we are told about that seems to have been preventing each side from taking the initiative enforcing the battle, was to do with divine matters. The omens that were being revealed to both during the sacrifices told of victories while remaining on the defensive. Though, as we have seen in the current deployments of both armies, if one were to take the offensive action, they would be playing into the other's strengths while forfeiting their own. But after some days in the field, both commanders were well aware of the precarious positions, especially around supply. Bosanius was now about to take measures to rectify his supply issues, though doing so would involve a risky manoeuvre involving the entire Greek line. Next episode, we will see how the Greeks fared during their withdrawal and how the Persians would respond to what was unfolding before them. This will finally see the Battle of Plataea develop, the largest engagement of the Greek and Persian wars, and arguably one of the most decisive. Though this won't be the end of the Greek and Persian wars for us yet, as we still have to join the Greek fleet who we left some episodes ago on the island of Delos. They too would fight their own battle, which would turn out to be a very unique naval engagement. When I had originally planned a rough sketch of the episodes I would be doing, I had not planned that Plataea would take up three of them, but they just seemed to be too much to skip over, and I found the lead up to the battle very interesting. So, I hope all of the information I have presented has been just as interesting to you, the listeners out there also. Thank you everyone for your continued support, and a big shout out to those who have found some value in the series and have chosen to support it over on Patreon. 
If you have also found some value in the show and wish to support the series, you can support Casting Through Ancient Greece on Patreon. Supporters of the series over at Patreon receive various bonuses, such as early access and ad-free episodes, bonus episodes and monthly video show updates. If you would like to support the show over on Patreon, you can head to patreon.com forward slash casting through ancient Greece, or click on the Patreon link on the Casting Through Ancient Greece website. Otherwise, you can also support the show by leaving a review at iTunes or your favourite podcasting platform. They go a long way to helping support the show. Also, you can follow the series on Facebook and Instagram at Casting Through Ancient Greece or on Twitter at Casting Greece. To receive updates and to be notified of new episodes, you can subscribe at castingthroughancientgreece.com. I hope you can join me next time for episode 29, The Battle of Plataea.